Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. No matter what kind of, quote, tribulations, end quote, we as humans are going through, there will be this moment when the world will be beautiful for all of us. In his new book, A Beautiful Ending, historian John Jeffries Martin traces narratives of the apocalypse over the last 500 years in the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim traditions. I ask him about the hell in a handbasket narrative we are telling ourselves these days on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format in dialogue and back and forth will help us approach the truth and have a great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I'm honored to welcome John Jeffries Martin. He is a historian of early modern Europe and a professor at Duke University. He specializes in social, cultural, and intellectual history of Italy in the 16th and 17th century. He's the author of Venice's Hidden Enemies, Italian Heretics in a Renaissance City, 1993, which won the Herbert Baxter Adams Prize of of the American Historical Association. Also of Myths of Renaissance Individualism in 2004, and most recently, A Beautiful Ending, The Apocalyptic Imagination and the Making of the Modern World, published this year, 2022, from Yale University Press. That's the book we're talking about today as well as some 50 articles and essays, several of which I got to read as a graduate student myself, as well as his 2007 edited volume, The Renaissance World. And we're doing something a little bit unusual because we just talked for an hour about the book and about its history uh, on the New Books um, the New Books in History podcast, which is part of the New Books Network. And I am a frequent host there. Um, and we talked about the history of the book, but I, right now I just want to, while while we are here together, I would love to just talk about the apocalypse, what we think of it, where it comes from, where it's going, um, and all of those things. So um, welcome, Professor uh, Martin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Christophe. Yeah. I have a joke for you, which I just read uh, last week. It comes from Pope John the Twenty Third, and a journalist asked him, how many people work at the Vatican? And the Pope said, Oh, about half of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so this book, which we, and I'll put the link um, below for people who want to talk a little bit more about early modern history in Europe and in the world, both the Spanish Empire and also the war with Turkey, and also how um, Jews and Muslims saw the apocalypse, not just Christians, both Catholic and Protestant. Um, the book is called A Beautiful Ending. And it, it comes from the history of early modern Europe, from, from Columbus to the French Revolution. And I feel it connects the dots between uh, familiar actors and events that define this period, from Columbus to Gutenberg to Luther to Thomas Hobbes to Henri of Navarre to Michel de Montaigne. And it'll be, a, it'll be a delight to the specialist, but can easily be an introduction for the casual reader of history or the undergraduate student. Except that Professor Martin has overlaid the familiar narrative with the term apocalypse, and he's added a comparative lens of Jewish and Muslim history. So, to to learn more about that book, and I um, and I highly recommend you buy it. Um, you should listen to the other interview. But first, for this interview, let's let's talk about the apocalypse. Um, Absolutely. What what is it? Where did it come from? What is it? What does it look like? Where do we get it? Well, the apocalypse uh, is often associated uh, with the book of Revelation and the Christian tradition, which is also called the book of apocalypse. And apocalypse is a Greek, apocalypsis is a Greek word meaning revelation. Um, and revelation is a prophecy about the nature of the end times. And for those who've read uh, the book of Revelation, it is one weird text. Yeah. It's full of uh, 
visions and monsters and symbolic tales that lend themselves to a variety of interpretations. So it became the stuff of uh, artists explored, novelists have explored, um, and preachers explored uh, throughout the Middle Ages and, and down to our own time. Um, but the idea of the apocalypse, the idea that there will be an end of time in which those who are faithful will be saved or enter into a more perfect life, is actually much older than Christianity. And just going back in time, the most important work in the Hebrew Bible, that's of course also a Christian text, is, is the book of Daniel. And in that work as well, it's a book of visions of the end of time. And that book as well is an apocalyptic text. And both of these books, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, uh, are, are composed or put together at times of political crisis where a particular group of people felt that they were endangered by uh, political forces outside their own control. And they were looking for a kind of divine rescue of themselves. But even these are rooted in much more ancient ideas that had circulated in the Near East and parts of the Mediterranean going back perhaps as much as a thousand or 1500 years before the Christian era. Um, and so these ideas are ancient. Um, and I would argue that while they were extraordinarily important in the second century BCE when the book of Daniel was written down and in the uh, early Christian period when the, uh, when the book of Revelation was written, uh, they really become far more important in terms of history, uh, beginning probably in the period of the Crusades. Uh, and then I argue they become extremely important uh, in the early modern period with the development of the printing press. Uh, so many apocalyptic texts uh, circulated as a result of that in a way that they never had before uh, with the growth of uh, global empires and with the rise of commerce as well. All of those contributed to an intensification of the apocalyptic. And what's weird, and maybe we'll talk about, is the apocalyptic remains today a very much part of our imaginary. Yeah. And do you, um, from your scholarship, is the received version of the book of the apocalypse that we have today, that it was written by St. John, the beloved apostle in his old age on this island of Patmos. St. John, who had, you know, spent some years after, after the life of Jesus taking care of Mary, you know, so he had a lot of time to learn a lot more than we, we can ever know from just the scripture. And then somehow he ends up either on exile or maybe, uh, you know, sort of as a hermit on this island. And there he has a dream. Is, is that true? Is that the right version? I That's a contested version, isn't it? I mean, I'm not an expert on the book of Revelation, but there, is a, there are two traditions. There's a tradition that uh, the book of Revelation is composed by John, the author of the Gospel of John, and then there's a version that it's composed by a different John, John of Patmos. And uh, I'm inclined to think that the second version is the one that most scholars would agree with, although there was a telescoping of the two identities of these writers by many commentators on the Bible in earlier periods. Got it. Um, okay. And the book of Daniel, do we know who, was it the prophet Daniel who wrote it 200 years earlier or? It's about the prophet Daniel. I don't know enough oh, about it. his composition. It. Okay. All right. Um, fair enough. Okay. So, uh, you write about the apocalypse as a shared tradition of Western monotheists um, and also as a as a response to the acceleration of historical change, which I think is a really interesting thesis. Um, could you first tell us about how Jews, Christians and Muslims, um, uh, what what's common in their view of the, yes. of the beautiful ending and what and what's different? Yeah, well, I think I think that the way I tried to so so, so the way that I tried to get at their commonality is largely through the title of Beautiful Ending, that all three of these traditions uh, put their faith in the idea of a Messiah. Um, for the Jews, the Messiah for whom they were continuing to await, uh, for Christians for the return of Jesus Christ in the second coming, 
and for Muslims in the arrival of the Mahdi, which was a messianic figure in both uh, Sunni and Shia Islam. Uh, And so all of them have this vision that at a certain point in history, no matter what kind of, quote, tribulations, end quote, we as humans are going through, there will be this moment when the world will be beautiful for all of us. Now, there were different interpretations of what that ending would look like. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know I, think, I think the whole idea of endings is, is often not something neat or, or clean, uh, no matter when we're talking about endings. endings are, an ending is a very complicated notion. Um, but in general, uh, they envisioned a much more perfect society, a more just society. There's a great deal of emphasis on justice in the Islamic tradition, um, justice and abundance, things that many people lack, they thought would be realized on earth. Uh, many aspects of Christian utopianism had similar visions of the growth of knowledge, of harmony, of long life. All of that would be part of the Christian um, millennium, for example. And, and Jews would see themselves reunited in Israel, awaiting the return, of, not the return, but the coming of the Messiah. That's very interesting. And do you think that the Christians have less of an emphasis on this is how it's going to, you know, how how, comf- how heavily laden will be this banquet table? It's more of a metaphor where you are just in the presence of God ra- rather than you'll be, you know, have these things that you were lacking here in your impoverished life as a peasant. It's difficult to generalize about Christians. Uh, of course, difficult to generalize about Muslims and, and Jews as well. Um, but, but, but the answer to that is yes and no. I mean, there were certainly many interpreters of the book of Revelation who saw it in a very metaphorical sense and did not believe it spoke to any earthly realities. But there were also many people who were inspired by the book of Revelation to try to bring about the millennium on earth as a way of accelerating the coming of Christ, the, re- the return of Christ. Got it. Um, now, what, as you work on this uh, this book, which is a, uh, a unifying history book of many peoples across many um, years in many places, do you think of it as a work of pure history or maybe literary history? Or do you have an idea about the way history is playing to our present day and also going forward, ideas of the apocalypse or an apocalypse uh, that color your search for the beautiful ending. So, so I, I think I think of the work as a work of history. I'm a, I'm a historian. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of primary texts to try to and secondary works to try to piece this particular story together. Um, I'm by far the first to work on this theme. There have been general arguments about the importance of the apocalypse for modernity before me, but there's been so much uh, specialized scholarship done in the last 20 or 30 years in each of these religious traditions that this was my attempt to bring together the newer scholarship and, and to try to make the point once again that the apocalyptic is a driving force of modernity. Um, so I think of it as a work of history. Uh, it's largely a work of the history of ideas. I. I don't want to say intellectual history because it's not always about people we associate with the elite. I also mm. look at popular movements within this tradition as well. So it's also the kind of cultural history of apocalypticism as, as well. And I certainly believe, but only after really completing the work, that my interest in apocalypticism was shaped by the present. I don't think I knew that until I completed the work. I have never been particularly interested in uh, apocalyptic film or novels. Um, I know I know that that exists, and that's very much part of popular culture in in America. That has never been my my cup of tea. But I do think that you know, as someone who grew up. Uh, fearing the outbreak of a nuclear war, really mm-hmm. believing that it could happen at any moment. As a boy, I remember uh, during during lightning storms thinking that, oh, my God, you know, the Russians are bombing us now. So I, wow. I lived that fear in the late how, 50s. How old? Oh, yeah. How old were you yeah. when you thought So that? I was 10, so 1961, yeah. two, somewhere in there. Um, and, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was 12 or 13 was uh, a very frightening 
moment. I grew up in South Georgia. I even remember seeing uh, wave after wave of American fighter jets flying south into Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right over the island I grew up on. Um, so I, I I grew up with that, and of course now there is uh, concern about our environment and our climate that is also uh, ap- apocalyptic. And so I think that you know one of the one of the interesting things is that it's really in the 18th century that uh, we came to understand that the Earth is ancient. Um, before that, most people believe the Earth was uh, a creation that had been maybe a little over 6,000 years old and that its time was going to wrap up after 7,000 years of existence. And so I grew up in a world where the Earth itself was you know, largely permanent. Our, our ideas about the Earth have shifted, right? We now realize we are but one planet in one solar system in one galaxy in a universe of billions of galaxies and maybe even a universe that is one of billions of universes. We don't really know. So our sense of who we are is completely different from what people thought they were in the early modern period, where they thought they were on the earth, which many of them despite Copernicus continued to believe was at the center of the universe and that God had placed us at the center of the universe, that idea, our sense of where we are in space in the universe is completely transformed. Our sense of time has been completely transformed. So it's weird to think of the apocalypse, thinking of the apocalypse today is something quite different from what it was in the uh, early modern period or the medieval period largely because our sense of time and space is so radically different from what it used to be. That's extremely, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, you begin your book um, talking about um, Columbus crossing the Atlantic and things like that. And I remember those old medieval maps where Jerusalem was in the middle, right? And those T&O maps where you, exactly. uh, you crossing the ocean, which is uncrossable. And then along comes Copernicus, and now the Earth is now in the middle. And just as you say, we are—we're just—we just been here a very short time. Um, do you think this is kind of like growing up? And like, I think I'm the center of the world when I'm two years old, and then I realize, oh, I have siblings, and then I realize, oh, there's other families, and then I realize, oh, there's lots of societies, and and now planets, and now galaxies, and yeah, I, I mean, that's that's really uh, that's a fascinating analogy. I, I think it is like growing up in a sense, but I also think that we're talking about a much deeper transition in our sense of ourselves in the universe than what one experiences in one's own life in terms of growing up. Yeah. I had um, similar... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say I had similar feelings when I was a child uh, as you had, um, and I was that age in the 80s, and we had predictions that the end was near. And we had this student newspaper in news, in uh, third grade called The Weekly Reader that had predicted that killer bees were coming north from Mexico. And after that, I would always look for bees and say, are you one of the are you one of the killer bees? Are you one of the killer bees? And the killer bees never came. So... Um, then I remember it was the ozone layer and then Y2K and, of course, climate change and SARS and COVID and so on. Um, your generation had nuclear war to, to worry about. Perhaps we'll have that again soon, depending on what happens next. Um, is this just yeah. human nature or is it because we're, everything is changing so fast? Well, I think, I, I think the answer to that is a, a, a bit of both, that, that um, you know, we, we are meaning-making creatures. We try to make sense of the chaos around us. And, you know, as a historian, you know as well is that um, we, we, when we go into the archive or into the library, um, we, we often face just vast confusion of material. And it's our task to try to find order in that material, to make sense of it in, in some way. And so, you know, I, I can tell you that I remember the killer bees as being in the early 80s, too, because <laughs> I moved from uh, Massachusetts to San Antonio, Texas, just about the time the killer bees were on the horizon. And I thought, this is terrible timing. I'm getting closer and closer to Mexico, and I'm going to be attacked by killer bees. I was sure I was going to die that way. So somehow I escaped that, <laughs> escaped that thing. Um, yeah. So, so we do have these sort of significant moments uh, 
and, and we we think that it's going to be very transformative. I don't think we're wrong today um, to say that we are more anxious today um, about the future of humanity than we've been in a, in a long time. And I think that that's primarily due to climate change. It's astonishing uh, how uh, egregiously irresponsible Putin has been in threatening the use of tactical nuclear weapons in the war in Ukraine, um, which has put the danger of a nuclear conflict back into all of our minds. And it's not impossible that he will use nuclear weapons. So, so we live in a world where, which is not only fragile in terms of how we interact with nature, but it's also fragile in terms of how we interact with, with one another. And that's creating a degree of uncertainty that I think is uh, greater than it's probably been uh, since the Second World War. Yeah, well, he's kind of like, beware the man who has nothing to lose. Right? His plan went so poorly. He's, it did. Yeah, right? And so now he's like, well, in that case, I'm going to knock over the whole chessboard and yeah, start, and that start seems over. That's what he's trying to do right now, even though he continues to lose. But, but, I, but, but I do think that um, we are not, uh, I don't think we would be exaggerating to say that we live in apocalyptic times. Yeah, and you think more so than when Khrushchev was putting rockets in, or maybe who can compare? We just say it's just, it's just as bad, and why does I one think, have to be worse? In ter- I, you know, I think I mean there have been these interesting analogies between Khrushchev and Putin and the Cuban Missile Crisis in Ukraine, um, and those are perhaps instructive analogies that might help us avoid a nuclear conflict, and and I hope that's the case. Um, but I I think that a more existential threat is uh, what we see happening to our environment, whether it's fires in California or around the Mediterranean Sea or typhoons and hurricanes. We're seeing the destruction of habitat of humanity. And, you know, we're maybe just beginning to see the beginning of that. And, and so we it's something we have to take extraordinarily seriously. We have to find a collective way to respond to it. I I believe that is still possible, but I do think it's provided us with a sense that, you know, we could be an extinct species within the next few hundred years. Yeah, and and um that is a sobering thought. I, I in where I live, I'm in the minority of people who has great optimism for human innovation. And I don't worry about it so much. But every time I have a conversation about it with my friends, I'm definitely the odd man out. And everybody is deeply concerned. And I just think like we live in a time when people have more access to uh, communication, when, you know, the, the poor of the world have more food and resources and, and just calories than ever before. There are fewer famines. And so I'm I like to say, well, it's going to be fine. Everything's been fine so far. But I only have to be wrong once to be. You sound like Stephen Pinker. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, but, but, I, yeah. but I no, I, I think, you know, history and so, the study of society, the study of humanity or history, um, it's always a mixed slate, right? There are always positive things and negative things happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, uh, terrible news makes the paper sell more than good news. That's true. And there is good news in, in the papers. If one if one reads carefully enough there, you know, breakthroughs in, in medicine and technology, uh, solutions to disease that had not existed before, bringing people out of poverty in certain pockets of the globe. All of that, all of that is very good news. Maybe despite all the war that's taking place, maybe there's less warfare than er- an earlier period. Pinker uh, might yeah. be on something about this notion of, of progress in his, our better, what is the title of the book? I don't remember, Our Better um, Angels. Yes, like yes, that. yes, yes, something like that. But, 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 but you're right, there's never going to be a news story that says 50,000 airplanes landed safely this morning. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I, I do think that um, we are in a, you know, one of those periods of history uh, maybe has been going on now for some time in which we're living through such rapid change in the way we live uh, and we're confronting, you know, such 
radical changes in the climate. It, I'm in North Carolina. It's uh, October the 15th, and it's like a pleasant summer day here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been this way for, for several days. And, and it's beautiful, but it's not normal. Um, and I, I think that we have this, I mean, maybe you don't, but I have this anxiety. And I think a lot of people have this anxiety <laughs> that we really are facing a challenge, the likes of which we haven't faced in a long time. Well, I also, yeah, I agree. It's better to be safe than sorry. And it's always better to clean up pollution than leave it around for sure. Just, just out of responsibility. I'm not not denying that earlier generations haven't been through uh, apocalyptic moments and, and, and they've gotten through them. Uh, So, you know, I hope, I hope we will get through this one. Yeah. I want to, before we move on, I want to back up and ask you why you don't like apocalyptic uh, literature and movies, because I really do enjoy them. And I wonder if that's a bit of sort of schadenfreude where I imagine I'm smashing the precious vase that's always standing, you know, like you're just trying to imagine the destruction of something beautiful. And I'll tell you one story. I have a family friend who's a wonderful woman who wrote a short story that anybody can buy on Amazon called What We... I think she called it what we talk about when we talk about the apocalypse. And there's a really nice lady, but her thesis disturbs me because she says that the reason we enjoy the apocalypse is because now finally all those guys on top are going to get theirs too. There's nobody who escapes the apocalypse. And so it's a, it's a delight to see all those haves, the people who have had such an easy time of it, suffer along with all the rest of us. And I find that deeply cynical and I totally disagree, but I still like those movies. Why don't you? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I... I, I don't know why I don't I, I'm not attracted to science fiction or fantasy as genres. I just never have been. Um, and so I think I think that's why a contemporary apocalyptic literature has not really been part of my uh, taste. What about those uh, left behind books that were popular 20 years ago? Did you ever look at those in your in your studies? I, yeah, I glanced at those. Uh, I could not. You know, I just admitted that I lived in Texas. I loved San Antonio, by the way. Texas mm-hmm. gets a bum rap when it shouldn't. It was a fascinating city. Um, and there were bumper stickers on the cars, I suppose, of my neighbors that said, um, if you see the car running and it's empty, I've been raptured <laughs> up. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I was very aware of the Left Behind series in Texas. And I, I'm sure I, in the bookstores, uh, looked at the store. In fact, I, I, watched, I watched a movie based on uh, one of those books uh, that was just extraordinarily bad. So <laughs> I, I know a little bit about them. They certainly yeah. have been very popular. I think they sold yeah. millions and millions of copies. Yeah, and I I just remember flipping through them at Target one day, uh, and then just thinking, wow, how can there be so many? <laughs> like episode eighteen or whatever they were of, of these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, okay, um, so here we are. We're marching forward. Every and we, let's start with uh, Thomas More, and uh, he was he's a he's a saint in the Catholic Church, but he was a uh, a Catholic who defied Henry VIII and, yes. you know, received the crown of martyrdom for it. Yes. Uh, and he, you know, he really practiced what he preached. And um, is a, he's, he's my confirmation saint. That's um, I know you're not Catholic, but uh, when you, you know, when you are confirmed in the Catholic Church, you, you take on a, a patron saint. So I often think of him. Well, um, well I, yeah. I will correct you. I, I'm almost a good Catholic. You're almost a good Catholic. Um, very good. Um, well, that's what we all are, which is also why my car is never going to drive after the rapture without me. I'll be right here with all the rest of us because we are all sinful. But OK, so but, uh, here comes uh, Thomas More. Um, he writes Utopia. Right. And and when we talk about utopia nowadays, we just as often talk about dystopia. He imagined a a, a perfect society on Earth, which is not a very Catholic thing to do. Uh, utopia means no place. Would you like to talk about this um, this work of literature? It's a very short book, and I'm sure anyone can find it, you know, quickly as a PDF online if they want to read it. Um, and then what the heirs of this vision have brought us. Yeah. So Utopia by Moore is an absolutely fascinating text. Um, and uh, we, we know a lot about the circumstances that led Moore to write it. Moore was a humanist. Uh, he was in the circle of Erasmus. Um, he was playful in his, in his writing. And the interpretation of Utopia is extraordinarily difficult because it's difficult to know 
how serious Moore was or was he being particularly playful. But what is we can say for sure is that the writing of Utopia was enabled by the encounter that Europeans had with the New World and particularly with Brazil. And Moore had read about the voyages of America Vespucci to Brazil, and he found those, which may have, in fact, not been by Vespucci and may have been fictitious in certain places, he found an opening for a new fiction, which was uh, the story of a Portuguese sailor who, having been abandoned by his captain and left in Brazil, decided with a few fellow Portuguese to return to Portugal, and they did so by crossing the Indian Ocean. And on their way back, they came upon an island called Utopia. And it had its own language, its own particular political and social institutions. And more, especially in book two of Utopia, gives us a description of this society. And it's a society that sought to overcome many of the aspects of English society in the early 16th century when Moore was writing that were exploitative and difficult for individuals. And so he tried to imagine a a much better world. This work was published in Latin um, and it's only translated, it's published I think in 1516 roughly, and it's only translated into English uh, a good bit later in the mid 16th century. Uh, But it's a book that has a huge impact on the imagination of Western society and probably global global society for sure. There's a uh, historian in Britain who's just been working on the global utopia of Moore and its reception around the globe. And so utopia is an idea uh, that uh, it antedates Moore, but it really accelerates greatly with Thomas More and other writers of utopia in the early modern period and continues to shape this vision we have of history that points not only to the past, but to the future that we can create a better, or we might be able to create a better society. Yeah. And um, do you think that this is the antecedent of all the perfect societies, um, you know, where, like I, I, like I said earlier, that people reset the year to, to zero, they rename all the months, they rename the days of the week, and then you know, like in the French Revolution comes the terror or in yeah. the Soviet or Chinese experiment or anybody else who thinks they've got it figured out, trouble follows. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a complicated issue. Um, and I think it depends on which particular group, group you're talking about. Um, I, I, I think it's true that when you try to reset the calendars, it's the Jacobins do in the French Revolution, uh, and you try to create the perfect society and people don't cooperate with you and you guillotine them as a result, that it can have catastrophic consequences. And we can see that throughout history and uh, many of the communist experiments, the Soviet Union, for example, or what happened in, in Mao's China have had terrible consequences. But I think there are other forms of utopianism uh, that are... I'm not sure utopianism is quite the right word. I think of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, vision of the beloved community or uh, the development of uh, human rights after the Second World War as a vision that not only were people who belonged to a state, but also stateless people uh, subject to protection uh, from other political authorities. Both of those are ideas that have had concrete results, and I don't think have necessarily led to destruction. No, that's a really good argument. And I think I took a too dark of a view because you're right about the beloved community. And I think you could say the same thing about um, other, you know, New Deal, Square Deal, Great Society. Everybody's Mm got to, you have to, to get everybody to march in the same direction, you have to give them some kind of vision. And it doesn't have to be a bloody one, but it doesn't always end up where you want it to, or there are strange side effects. Exactly. Exactly. It could go either way. 
Yeah. Um, so the utopians have no private property, and they actually reserve gold and silver as marks of shame to be worn yes. by criminals. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is a you know a criticism of his of his own society, right? Of, of which exactly, exactly. He, he was was he chancellor or something like that, or uh, he, uh, he was something chancellor. very high. Yeah. Yeah. So he, 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 he writes this. He writes this work actually. Um, and you see this particularly in book one of Utopia, uh, where there's a dialogue about whether a philosopher can serve as a counselor to the king. And so the writing of book one in particular was his own effort to come to grips with whether or not he should enter into royal service. He does become chancellor and then he disagrees with Henry about the divorce and is ultimately executed. And, you know, um, the king of Britain, who is, we just have a new one, they're still called defend, Defender of the Faith. There's a little DF, yes. Defensor Fides. And that's inherited from Henry VIII. Is it true that Thomas More wrote um, that tract uh, in, in under the name of Henry VIII that got the King of England that title? That, that I don't know. I have no okay. clue about that. Yeah. Okay. So, but you connect St. Thomas More to uh, St. Paul's description of the early Christians uh, in Acts of the Apostles, yes. chapter 4, and yes. also to the missionaries working for the creation of God's kingdom on earth in the new world. Would you like yes. to tell us about those the projects of Motolinia, the Franciscans, the Dominicans in Mexico, who thought their world was in its 11th hour and all that? Yeah. So it's a great uh, episode in the history of the Franciscans. And uh so, so as, as no doubt you and our listeners will know, the Franciscans had many branches and theologies and ideas about uh, the faith. Uh, but one of the ideas that was prominent among the Franciscans was the ideal of apostolic poverty. That was really at the core of the teachings of St. Francis himself. And, and in the 12th century, as many scholars of the medieval period have shown, uh, this idea of apostolic poverty was widespread. And it itself was a reaction to the emergence of a commercial uh, civilization and the rejection of the kind of wealth discrepancies that 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 was bringing about. So the Franciscans were traditionally mendicants, that is, people who asked people to help support them. Um, and, And these were new religious impulses in, in the late Middle Ages, and they were extraordinarily powerful, and they were extraordinarily powerful in late medieval Spain and uh, deeply influenced uh, Christopher Columbus, for example. But these Franciscan missionaries who came to uh, Mexico, uh, were uh, there were 12 of them, and they came under, with the belief It's a fascinating story, and I'm not sure I'm going to get it exactly right, but they came with the belief that they could preach poverty in Mexico, that they would help them, they would, in this preaching, create a kind of beloved community, we could say, that would presage the end of the world. So they aspired for the end of time. And in fact, if I recall, Modolinias, that name is is an Aztec, a Nahuatl. Mm -hmm word for poor, which yeah. he adopts. I think his name was something like Toribio de Benvenante or something like that. Mm. And so he adopts this name, Otolini. He was the poor friar who was preaching poverty. And this ideal of apostolic poverty would transform. In the new, you could create in the new world this new society that would help usher in the kingdom of God. And of course, there's a deep parallel to that among the Puritans who were engage in a similar kind of religious mission. Yeah, no, you're. I think you're exactly right. I, I study quite a bit about this um, as a you know Spanish historian, and it, indeed, they came twelve, which is a good number to come. And indeed, they they really had um, great sincerity, which is something I wonder if we can measure. Uh, but of course, they also came alongside of these grasping conquistadores. Who exactly. wanted gold, and not only gold, they wanted slaves in their in their encomiendas yes. to do the to do the work for them. So there's like, it was must have been a very confusing time to be trying so earnestly to win souls for the kingdom of heaven, even while your compatriots are ruining, you know, the whole the whole project with with the other hand. Exactly. Exactly. There's sounds a, familiar yeah. to me. It sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you have people doing the good work, and then you have people screwing it up. 
Yeah, and this is an example where you know it would have been nice to have some centralized authority because how many weeks does it take for the news to get back to the emperor? You know, where he yeah. says like knock that off. And I think there, are, like Queen Isabella had said, who are who is turning my vassals into slaves? That's you know like she objected to it, or, or King Charles or Emperor Charles V. We know heard that great de- debate between Las Casas and Sepulveda. Like yes. can can there be can Indians be slaves or no? Indians are in our care for the evangelization of new new lands, and yet. You know, the distance from the emperor to the colony was so great that these conquistadores could run amok and, and do some terrible damage. Well, that you know, you're making a really important point about the early modern world, and that is that communication was much slower, much, much slower than we can even imagine today. Yeah. Right. We, we're frustrated if, you know, if I send an email to someone in Italy and I don't hear back from them within a couple of hours. I'm thinking, why hasn't Paolo responded to me? What's going on? You know? Yeah. So I, I think that we, we, it's hard for us to imagine that, you know, that weeks pass, months pass, maybe a year passes before a message reaches one part of the globe to another. But it also is a good reminder that, um, of how little we know about the early modern world. Um, because we tend to see things from the vantage point of centers of power or from the records that reach centers of power. Right. So there must have been so many things that happened about which we know nothing and never will know anything. Yeah. I, I once wrote a paper about this fellow called Diego de Valadez, who who was... I, uh, I'm now forgetting. I think he might have been a Dominican, but he might. I think he was a Dominican, and he was, you know, his father was also Diego de Valadez, a Spanish conqueror, but his mother was a Tlaxcala woman, and so this was a mestizo who was, you know, taken in and and um, uh, trained by I think the Dominicans in the in their um, their college of the native people, the Colegio de Naturales. And he became a, you know, a very strong evangelist who would then go from central Mexico to the, to the limits of, you know, Spanish control out to the Chichimeca in the far West, out to Zapoteca, stuff like that. And so there's this beautiful moment when really the evangelization project starts off well, but it doesn't stay that way. And um, by, I think by 1555, there are, they are forbidding indigenous people to become priests and all kinds of crazy things like that, yes. which uh, Las Casas was deeply worried about. And um, do you want to talk about his conversion and his work? Yeah, I mean, Las Casas is a totally fascinating pe- person. Um, uh, he He travels to the New World. He's working on his father's encomienda. He is, uh, becomes a priest. He's ordained in the new world. And then shortly after that, he undergoes a conversion in which he comes to deplore the way in which the Spanish are uh, destroying the civilization of the Caribbean and also taking people in, into slavery, taking, taking uh, uh, indigenous peoples of the new world. Originally, Las Casas, actually favored the importation of slaves from West Africa. He, he turns against that ultimately. Uh, so he's a complicated person, and but he is, turns out, and this is something I discovered in writing this book, that he is a extraordinary historian of the new world. And his Historia de las Indias, which is in three volumes, is this massive history of the early part of the encounter between the Spanish and the Tainos and the other peoples of the New World, and it's well worth reading. There's a um, abridged English translation. I don't think there's a full English translation. There's a full French translation, um, but it's an extraordinary work, uh, and it's based both on documents but also on how many of the major figures he knew in this period. Uh, so he he's an incredibly interesting source. I, I looked at him primarily for what I could learn about Christopher Columbus from him. And, and he had a very ambivalent view of Columbus. Uh, he was in awe of Columbus's learning and knowledge, uh, but he certainly saw the flaws of Columbus as well. Yeah, and it, it's through him that we even have Columbus's journal, the Diario. That's of right. We have, we have the diary of the first voyage because of a copy that uh, Las Casas copied out, and he, tra- he changed, changed it a great deal. So we don't actually have the original journal, but we we can sense the original journal in the version we have from Las Casas. 
do you think he, in his editorial power, sort of colors it? You know, because Columbus comes across as very strange in that in that journal. <laughs> and and I, I mean I mean for example like it's there are things that he says that are manifestly false about the height of certain mountains and you know yes. like he's this can't be the highest mountain because I happen to know back in August you were on Tenerife and there's a higher mountain there or um you know the his, his like his exaggerations and 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 like his communications with people with whom he did not share a language so you know he's just giving meaning to whatever he wants He's giving meaning to what, I mean, this is, this is a really fascinating question about Columbus and communication, right? That he cannot communicate directly with the natives. I mean, he does enslave some young men who are Tainos and teaches them Spanish. And so he does have interpreters eventually, but often he's, you know, claiming to have understood something that the natives told him, which he could not possibly have, have understood. Uh, and so, so this is a really interesting problem the question of translation in, in, in a period of conflict. Um, there, there's similar stories actually that come out of uh, the American military experience with translators in Afghanistan during the war there. In any case... Um, oh, would you like to say something about that? I, that sounds remarkable. Well, it's, ju- it's just that that in terms of getting requisite, I heard this report on national public radio that in terms of getting requisitioning support from local Afghanis, the translator would say that the Afghani was asking for a certain amount of money. And so he would be given the money to give to the Afghani, but the Afghani was asking for much less and the translator was pocketing the difference. So this happened gotcha. all the time. So, so translation in a zone of conflict is, is, is terrible. And, and really, you know, if we're going to try to be an empire, we, we should try to learn the languages of the people that we're interacting with. Yeah. But, but, but Columbus, going back to Las Casas, I don't know. I, I never studied the uh, diary of 1492 of the first voyage with an eye towards the way in which uh, Las Casas transformed it. And my own sense is that he was not trying to portray a particular kind of Columbus. He was trying to get at the essence of what he could learn from that diary. So, for example, the diary shifts from the first person to the third person. There are times uh-huh. when it's Columbus's own voice, and then there are times when uh, right, right. Is sort of the third person. And so Las Casas is obviously summarizing in, in those points. But what is fascinating to me about the diary is um, how confused Columbus was about where he was and yeah. what were the nature of the people that he was encountering. And, and, and so, and you can imagine that, right? We, you know, I'm interested in maps and um, I have, I had this happen to me not long ago with, Ah, it happened. I'll tell you where it happened to me. It happened on the campus of uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I had gone there to participate in a conference, and it's a quite large campus. It's beautiful. I know many buildings, but the building I was going to, I didn't know, so I used my GPS, and it took me to the wrong place completely. <laughs> in a sense, that's what happened to Columbus. He yeah. had maps. He he knew exactly where he was going. He had every reason to believe that once he reached the Caribbean, that he was very close to China. That corresponded with the map he had in his head, the maps he had studied before he traveled. Um, it's just not, he wasn't there. And, yeah. and you, you, you gain a sense that even though Columbus would largely insist until he died that he had come very close to reaching China, you, you get the sense that he was profoundly confused at the same time. That's so, that's so interesting. Yeah. And um, a couple of things jump out at me from, from what you just said. One, like he did things that make us suspect that he knew he was being um, duplicitous. For example, he kept... Uh, a logbook to show the men to show the distances were smaller and yes. an accurate logbook for himself so he knew where exactly. the heck he was because he was a Genoese he was afraid these Spaniards were going to throw him overboard you know if they thought they were doomed and lost at sea he made his men in Cuba swear or sign a paper or something like that that they were in Japan uh, or Sipangu yes. right like somebody yes. who makes you swear you're in Japan deeply knows they're not in Japan like on some level you know but at the same time like he would find um footprints on the beach and say aha this proves that there are griffins on this island or um he saw manatees and said i today i saw a mermaid but she wasn't as beautiful as i imagined she would be that sort of thing so there's credulity of like a deeply medieval fantastical john de mandeville kind of guy and then there's this kind of political savvy all at the same time 
plus plus the 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 franciscan element where he's wearing a habit and he's very religious or at least i don't know what a figure i agree i think uh, i actually teach uh, a seminar on columbus at at duke which i've only given once and i'm hoping to give it uh in the next academic year and uh one of the goals of the seminar we also look at the reception of Columbus to some degree, but what the primary goal of the seminar is to try to understand really the complexity and the contradictions of this this figure. Yeah, I was trying to make a case to my 13-year-old daughter why we should have Columbus Day, and she was not having it. <laughs> she, she was like, you are, you know, these guys are just uh, conquerors and villains. Um, but I also think there is the, what, what we Spanish historians always complain about as the black legend, that we live in this Protestant yes. Anglophone country, and everybody thinks the Spanish are up to no good. You know, uh, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, that kind of thing. And, you know, my daughter had a teacher that said, Columbus killed millions of people. And my daughter was like, well, I don't think there were millions of people on that island at that time, you know, and uh, we just sort of heap every villainy onto him instead of allowing for him to be this crazy and deeply interesting explorer. Um, I don't know if he should have a day. Maybe we shouldn't have it. Maybe, you know, I don't even think this continent should be named after Vespucci for that matter. I'm not sure who it should be named after, but uh, um yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we're going through a period of rethinking our history that's quite deep and dramatic, and Columbus is part of that that rethinking, and that's not only in the United States. That that rethinking also takes place in other other parts of the globe, particularly in Latin America, um, and so he's going to remain a controversial figure for sure, um, and one has to sort of think when you're studying him as a historian the obligation is to try to understand the context in which he was acting. And that's not to excuse the things he did, but it's to try to understand uh, why the things he did were part of a social order that he was part of. And I, I often tell my students that, you know, we, if we have to be careful and modest about how we view the past. And I, I think, you know, we talked earlier about climate change. I can imagine a hundred years from now, that my generation will be excoriated for continuing to use fossil fuels to the degree that we have. And and that this will be seen as absolutely egregious and that we should be canceled for all the things that we've done. So so we the problem is that everyone, whether we lived in the 15th century like Columbus or we live in the 21st century as we do now, lives in a world shot through with contradictions and different impulses. And you can't really extricate yourself from fossil fuels today. I mean, I'm sure there are some people doing that. And collectively, we need to do that. But, you know, if you continue to fly and you continue to drive a car which uses fossil fuels, you're contributing to global warming in an egregious way. But it's hard to avoid doing that. Yeah, well, I and I would just to be contrarian, I would argue that these fossil fuels have created this economy that brings clean drinking water and ends polio and does all sorts of things for people who were neglected for centuries. But that's a different debate. That's a different debate. I'm yeah. not going to get into that debate. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about the, a little more about um, the black legend and the canonization of Junipero Serra in 2015? Do you have an opinion about this? Because he's a figure who is a little bit canceled sometimes here in California. Yeah. Our yeah, last I, governor said we're going to keep his statue in the rotunda just as the pope was coming to make him a saint. A pope who really is a, cha- a champion of indigenous people and poor people. But yes. he's, he's, do you have a view on, on this? I, I don't. I don't know enough yeah. about that. Okay. Um, well, then let me run one last thing by you. I, I like to think of Columbus maybe less so, but like Jefferson for me is the perfect person to make statues of because he was a deeply sinful and flawed human being, but he articulated the way forward. And, you know, I think for humans, words come first and actions come later. And so if you say all men are created equal, even though you don't act like it, you, you sort of point a direction and we all sort of turn our heads and it might take a generation uh, or or in this case, you know, four score and seven years. But uh, there, like, there, are, there are people formed by their context who point in the right direction, even though they themselves are, you know, flawed and sinful and good and bad and ugly, just as all humans are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, like like Columbus, Jefferson is emerging as an increasingly complex and controversial figure in our own time. Um, so I, I would make a distinction between what 
it's a complicated distinction to make, and I don't mean to develop a wall between these two facets of a human existence, but I think there is a difference between the historical study of a major historical figure and the uses to which that figure is placed in the present. And that, and that, that it's interesting to think about how those two different perspectives on the same individual are different, but also at certain points overlap. Obviously, as a historian, we can't divorce ourselves from the present, um, but we can see that the uses of a figure are can be extremely different. Columbus is a really good example of that because the celebration of Columbus, which becomes very popular in the United States uh, in the late 19th century, uh, so the uh, what would have been the, the 400th, yeah. 400th anniversary of his first voyage, um, is would quickly become associated with uh, the pride of the Italian-American community in the United States. So here's an example of how the figure of Columbus is seen as a kind of symbol of multiculturalism. But when the Native American uh, movement really takes off, Columbus is villainized because he had destroyed so much of the indigenous civilization of the new world, or his actions led to the destruction. Yeah, right. He himself destroyed some of it, but his actions led to the destruction. So th- suddenly he moves from being a person who celebrates multiculturalism to a person who um, is against multiculturalism. And there's a marvelous episode in that former television series, The Sopranos, that grapples with this issue um, in which you talked about your daughters uh, deploring Christopher Columbus. And that episode, in one of those episodes, the daughter of Tony Soprano is reading Howard Zinn's History of the American People. Oh, fantastic. Famous opening chapter uh, (laughs) denouncing Christopher Columbus. And then there's another scene where the, you know, the Italians are out protecting the statue from the, from the Native Americans. So this is a deeply felt issue uh, in the present, and it resonates with us. And I, you know, I think that any individual who happens to have played one of these pivotal roles in history is bound to find that his or her legacy is going to be very mixed and people are going to be fighting over whether the person was good or bad. Whereas if you're a historian, your assumption is that everybody is good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what the conversation is what we really want to have. And I think this Indigenous Peoples Day that Frank, um, I was my daughter's age on the 500th year anniversary. And I was a student here at Berkeley High School. And we were the first people to have Indigenous Peoples Day on that 500th anniversary. And now it's really caught on all around the country. It has caught on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. All right. Well, you know what? It's uh, you have given me so much time, and I've, I've. Was there anything else we should we should talk about before before we say goodbye? I have enjoyed talking to you, Christoph. This was so much fun. You provoked me to think about many new things, and that's always a great conversation. Thank you so much. It is it has been an honor and a delight, and I've you know I've been I've been reading your work for uh, fifteen years, and now I I get to talk to the man himself. So, I wish you a beautiful afternoon, and I thank you again. Okay. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinius and John Jeffries Martin recorded this conversation on October 15, 2022 the feast day of St. Teresa of Avila, a Spanish mystic, visionary, Carmelite nun, founder of the Discalced Carmelites, and the quatrocentenary, or 400th anniversary, of her canonization in 1622 by Pope Gregory XV. That same day, March of that year, he canonized Ignatius Loyola and Francis Xavier as well. In 1970, Pope Paul VI named St. Teresa of Avila the first female doctor of the church. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Look them up at www.gscoasterband.com. And our logo, the image of the dog, comes from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales at english.op.org. This, this.
This is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing.